Well, I'm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say um, uh, uh, a brief word of welcome to give more time um, to Gordon this morning. And uh, for starters, I'll simply say, Gordon, it's, it's fantastic uh, to have you here today. Uh, Dr. Gordon Bowles is um, uh, just a, a wonderful and a gifted counselor and has been here before to the Advent uh, to teach. And we've been very grateful for his teaching in the past and grateful He's with us today. He's also has been a tremendous blessing to Paul and myself, um, a, a real gift um, to us as well. And so someone for whom we're very grateful, not only um, professionally, but personally. So um, it's awesome that you're here this morning, Gordon. If I may, let me offer a, a prayer and uh, I will hand it over to you. Now, is this this is a series, yes? Or yeah, at least yeah, you're going to be three weeks. Three weeks. That's what I was. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So um, anyway, let me offer a prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful that you've gathered us together this morning and that you've given us the opportunity. And as we are gathered today, we pray that you would be in the midst of us. And we give thanks for your servant, Gordon, for his presence with us this day and the words which he will share. Pray by the presence and guidance and work of your Holy Spirit that your words would go forth in a way that takes root in our hearts and shapes and fashions us in in godly ways, we pray, in the name of your Son, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Right. Um, there's some handouts. I'm going to... We won't cover all of this, but we'll get to some of it. Here you go. Um, the this, this smallies, I guess, did we... I'm trying to think what grade Elise was in when we met y'all. Third grade? Yeah, third grade. So we've known the Smallies a long time. So they know that I'm teaching all this stuff theoretically because they've seen it practically, what it actually looks like. Um, as, as a way to introduce what I'm going to talk about, what I'd love for you to think about is I, I think really what's important in your families is the atmosphere. I personally believe Jesus is the one raising our kids, and we're trying to get an assist, I say. We're trying to help him. And I just think the way husband and wife relate together sets a tone or creates an atmosphere. And if I was going to give you an illustration, um, some mornings I forget to get breakfast or get, get, have to get going quickly, and so I'll run by Sneaky Pete's. And I'm always in and out of Sneaky Pete's really quickly. The atmosphere there is really different than like if you go to Highland Bar and Grill, where you actually want to sit down and relax and linger. The atmosphere you really want in your home is one of rest, where the children are at rest themselves and you can really make attachment with them. So today we're going to talk about rest. How do we grow rest? What's the impact of rest? Next week we'll talk about discernment and then the last week we'll talk about hope. But as we're embodying those things, rest and discernment and hope, how does it really impact our families? Um, I say this in the beginning of your handout. Families that are life-giving are restful. Restful parents do not feel pressure to have, do, or be more for their children. They view God as the source of nourishment for the family, and His covenant commitment to them as their greatest hope. I have two passages there. They say that the first one, earthly fathers disciplined us the best they know. God, uh, earthly fathers discipline us the best they know how. God does it perfectly. That's from Hebrews. And then from Matthew, if you ask your father for bread, will he give you a stone? If such sinful, wicked people do such kind things, how much more your father in heaven? 
to me, those two passages, what they really say is earthly parents, as good as they may be, fall far short of what any child needs. I say real simply, the thing we want to be best at, parents, is the thing we're definitely destined to not do really, really well. All right? If we think about where do you really, really see the gospel, how it's working in your life, it comes out in how you care about people. And if you're anything like me, I'm assuming you embody the gospel in a stumbling way. Hopefully you're moving towards more and you're growing and getting better. But I think all of us do the best we can as parents, but that still falls really far short of what our children need. What that does is that pushes us towards anxiety. That pushes us towards trying to do and be more than we can be. It doesn't push us towards rest. All right. So I want us to think, I have this psalm here, Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is actually two Proverbs of Solomon combined together to create one meaning. Okay, So I'm going to read the first two verses. It says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, the work of builders is useless. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Think about what it's saying there. Unless the Lord builds the house, the work is useless. Um, unless the Lord protects the city, it will do no good. We can anxiously work for bread to eat. God gives rest to his children. Those first two verses really say our effort is not that significant. Our effort is not that important. There's someone who's much bigger than our effort. Okay, that's verses 1 and 2. Now, that's one proverb. Let's set that aside and go to the second proverb. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. Children born to a young man are like sharp arrows in a warrior's hand. How happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. The second proverb is really about building family. And in the Hebrew culture, children, partly because it was an agrarian culture, were way more significant. And family, in some ways, was way more important than it is for us today because families were dependent on children in terms of their economy and sustenance. And so verses 3 and 4 and 5 are really about the building of one's family. I have a, a commentary here. It says this, Both sections share the distinctive theme of Yahweh's hidden, though decisive involvement in house and home. In the Hebrew text, there's a word play between the builders in the first half and the sons in the second. We also need to recognize the ambiguity building a house has in Hebrew. It can denote the physical structure, but also the household, that is, the family. While we cannot be certain the latter meaning was originally part of the first proverb, it certainly steps forward when seen in light of the second proverb. Thus, the whole psalm is concerned with the building of one's family. So I want you to think, if, if we're going to put those two Proverbs together, I have a big idea from that um, psalm. As you trust in God's covenantal commitment to build your family, you experience rest in the midst of your enemies. I want to, the Psalm 127 is a psalm of ascent. It's what the um, Israelites were singing as they came out of captivity. I don't know what songs you hear on the radio that really inspire you to hope and to like kind of keep pushing forward in whatever you're in. 
Well, this was a song that they sang collectively to keep remembering that God was with them and for them. And it was a song to bring hope that as we rest in God, He will build our family. He will build our future. And I think we all need kind of an anthem as parents that we come back to again and again and again where we're remembering it's not on our shoulders. One of the things I love about Christian parents is they really take parenting seriously. You know what I really don't like about Christian parents? Is that they take parenting seriously. Okay? Um, Our third born is probably our softest, kindest, most rested out of our three. And when she was about three, I looked at my wife and I was like, you know, we should start raising her, right? Um, We were significantly more relaxed and we weren't as noisy as parents. I think she shows the fruit of that. And partly because we had been down the path at least a little bit when she was born, we were beginning to trust in who the Lord was a little bit more and to see that it wasn't as much on our shoulders. I want you to think about this psalm in light of our culture as well. Because it's not just as Christian parents that you really, really want to do well as parents. You're also parenting in a certain culture, a certain context. In the back of your handout, you should have a a little picture of uh, two homes, okay? Um, talks about cultural changes. You see the photograph? Do you all have it? All right. Um, actually, that first home, that Fleming's, that's Joel and Lauren Brooks' home. Um, they let me use that picture. Okay, I want you to think about the difference of these two homes. And if we were going to really do this even more appropriately... The home up top wouldn't actually be as big. If you ride through Southside, the homes are significantly smaller. And in many ways, the home below would be much bigger. Okay, And in general, the homes are a little bit smaller, built in the 1920s, and had double the children that the bigger homes have today. Okay, So I want you to tell me, what are, what are some of the words that you would use to describe the difference between the two homes? Say again? Closets. Yeah. A lot more closets in the one. Okay. And most of them have at least two car garages. Which house had more possessions? Okay. And think about, like, I'm trying to imagine, I'm hoping, I don't know, I I forget, do the Brooks have a, is there a driveway coming in behind there? There's one behind. Because I'm just imagining shopping and trying to carry all... But there are, there are homes where you don't have that alley in the back. And just think about how frustrated we would be in our culture if we couldn't drive right in and take our groceries out. Okay. To me, I, I think um, the home on the bottom, it's more isolated. I, I, I really, I'm sorry if anyone has these homes, but I, I'm grieved at the homes with the garages in the front with no porches. Okay. Um, think about the big porch. If there's more of an invitation to come and sit, it's more communal, more rest, all right? Not as much isolation. Any other differences you all see in the two? Sidewalks. Yeah. People walked more in the community. Again, a little more communal, a little bit slower pace. Anything else? You can can turn back to the... um, front part of the handout. What what I wanted to illustrate a little bit through that is we're raising children in a very, very busy culture, and sometimes the mantra is like the busiest parents are the best parents. 
I am um, probably, I don't know, 20 years ago read a book called The Shelter of Each Other by Mary Piper, and it just talked about rest and spending more time outdoors, and I was really convicted at how much I was caught up in the culture of busyness, and have worked really, really hard to be slower as a parent, because we really don't connect as family in sound bites, and we really need rest. And I, I, can't, I can't tell you how hard it's been in our culture to rest even when we've tried to be restful. We've tried not to have our children in too many activities and really make space for us to connect. I'm going to use a term here. It's become actually a little bit more popular since I, I started using this. I read the book Affluenza. It was, there was a talk on NPR where I heard about it. I read the book. The term's become a little bit more popular if you've seen the 60-minute things on the affluenza kid, all right? But I think our enemy, unlike the Israelites, are not people who are going to come and destroy us. I believe our most significant enemy in our culture is busyness. I think it's what's hurting families the most, or affluenza. Here's how it's defined. Affluenza, painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste, resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Our fundamental belief about the gospel is that after Jesus sacrificed himself, he sat down. And I think because of our sin nature, we already have an anxiety. I mean, in a church that I think is doing the gospel well, you keep trying to believe it's not about what we do, it's not about our performance, it's about what Christ has done for us. We're trying to accept that and believe that. But we have a nature that bends itself, our sinful fleshly nature bends itself towards doing, not resting, not sitting down. And then we're in a culture that I think bends us to busyness. It is really, really hard to rest. I would say this, the pursuit of affluenza begins and continues based on a a faulty belief that God has, does, and will continue to hold out on you. And I think as a parent, like we can struggle on our own when we're in need, but when our children are in need, or our children are hurting, I mean, I never experienced pain, and I'm not a mom. I don't believe it impacts me the same way it does my mom, but I never experienced pain until I watched my children hurt. Or I watched my children do things I never thought they would do that really scared me. I mean, in that moment, I wanted an answer, and I wanted something that would ensure that my kids were going to be okay and they were going to turn out all right. My first inclination was not to say, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. All right? I have two passages there. Be silent and know that I'm God and how the busyness of this world clouds out the gospel and plants it in our hearts. Okay? Let's turn the page. I want to talk about all right, if we're aiming for restfulness, if we're saying, all right, our culture is, it's infected with affluenza. People are after way too much and they don't know how to rest and know how to be still. Why does this matter? And how does it matter? Okay? First thing I would say is restful parents model Trinitarian relating and aim for harmony, not unity. I think there's a pressure on parents to have it together, and this often means that we need to be in agreement. Can I tell you that 99% of our parenting decisions, we've not been in agreement. 
our agreement has been expressed in doing something together. But oftentimes, like when the kids were younger, I wanted them to be little soldiers. And my wife was like, they're kids. Relax. In fact, I didn't know what a hard man I was until I saw myself shoving my girls into their car seats because we had to get somewhere in this crazy, busy culture. Okay? Um, we are really different people, both gender-wise as parents, but personality-wise. This is John Gottman. Um, 75% of, he's done more research than anyone on marriage. 75% of the things couples disagree about in the beginning of their marriage stay alive through the life of their marriage. What that says is we're married to people with personalities that aren't going to change significantly. So we have to grow something much bigger than seeing everything the same way. And so what I think, if, as couples rest, all right, and it's not in our performance, it's not in our agreement, it's what God's doing in and through us, do you know it takes faith to keep making decisions with someone that you're not in total agreement with? All right? It takes faith to make decisions with someone you're not in total agreement with. All right? To me, Trinitarian relating is this. Three people, three people who are distinct and different and relate so well, they're called one God. All right? I mean, how much of the decisions of your family are influenced by both of you? Because if one person's always getting the call, that's not a Trinitarian relationship. Two unique people who are making decisions together. Okay? I say this. Integrating the gospel fosters a softness of heart, helping you to work together, and children are no longer part of a parenting triangle. Now, let me say this, what I mean by the parenting triangle. I'll give you an example, all right? Um, if you would have known me at 18, you would have said I was a little crazy. I, I went to the United States Merchant Marine Academy, which probably many of you have not heard of. It's a federal service academy like Annapolis and West Point. And I wanted, I didn't really care about the degree. I just wanted a service academy education because I love discipline and wanted more of it. Okay? That's, I mean, I lit literally said that before I got accepted. I just love discipline. I want more of it. All right? I'm not hard enough on myself. I need someone else to be hard on me. All right? I was a little freaky. All right? My wife's favorite song before we got married was Girls Just Want to Have Fun. If there was such a song, mine would have been guys just want to be serious. All right? So, I was determined. My philosophy of life was you just work hard, you just push through. My wife's philosophy of life was relax, enjoy life a little bit. Okay? And as a young father, I was determined that my daughters were going to adopt my philosophy of life. You know, you don't. You have a lot more margins and a little bit more rest when you're first married, and you're willing to live with some things in general. But oftentimes, when there's a child in front of you, you begin to say, that uh, laziness I was putting up with before this child came, that child's not going to get that laziness. And I'm determined to show my spouse in the way I interact with this child that laziness is not the way to life. That's the parenting triangle. We begin to push our philosophies on our child to go against our spouse. Does that make any sense? Okay. So let me give you an example. This is when we homeschooled and then we sent our children to Homewood Public School all in the same year, fifth, third, and first grade. They all started school the same year. My middle child is a typical middle-born. 
does not like routines, does not like busy work, loves life, loves laughter, loves to eat life up out of a spoon, okay? Long lines, busy work, public school was a real challenge to her. At the end of her first year, with three weeks to go, the teacher said, we're not going to introduce anything new, all right? And she came home from school, and, I, and it literally it sounded like this, I can't believe you're going to make me go to school for three more weeks when we're not going to learn anything new. This year's been hard enough on me as it is. I can't imagine how I'm going to do three more weeks of busy work. It's not exactly how she said it, but after she kind of had her spiel, my wife and I were talking, and she said, I just want to sign her out for lunch each Wednesday of the last three weeks just to encourage her to help her endure. Now, at that point, I don't know, we've been married 10, 12 years. If we had not had a lot of discussions, arguments, difficult uh, moments, all my blind spots, see, because I was a gifted academically and gifted athletically, working hard worked for me. But it doesn't work for everyone, and I don't believe it's a philosophy of life. This thing, if you just work hard, you can accomplish what you want. Well, someone who's made the NFL in a 6'2 and runs a 4'4'40, he can accomplish what he wants because he's worked hard, but not the guy who's 5'8 who runs a 5'2'40. And so when my wife said, we'll just sign her out early, if I had not had a lot of my blind spots uncovered by my wife prior to that point, if I had not developed a whole new way of thinking simply because I tried to welcome who my wife was into my world, I would have said over my dead body, are we signing her out early the next three weeks? She's going to suck it up and learn how to push through difficulty. Instead, I said, I think it's a really good idea that we sign her out early. Okay? A softness of heart, if you are at rest, which means you don't have to be in control and you're open to your spouse and you're open to your differences, the softness of heart is they begin to help you see things you don't see about yourself. And as they uncover those things, you change as a person. Do you know who benefits from that most of all? Your children. Okay. I was an uptight, driven, self-righteous, hard person. So when my daughter, that middle one who loves to do things with me, we were packing our van to go see my family in New Jersey, and she said, Dad, are you going to ruin this trip too? <laughs> and I said, uh, sweetheart, I didn't even know I was getting upset. But thank you for saying something. And sweetie, if I get like this again, you have my permission to say something. Eight hours later in Virginia, she said, Dad, <laughs> you remember how you said I could say something? Well, now's the time. Okay? Um, in our old house, we had had a scuff mark where I'd kicked the door because I was doing an activity with her, and, and we left the scuff mark on the door. We never took it away. I don't know why. We're in a new house. It's 10, 12 years later. And that daughter says, um, Daddy, there's no scuff mark in this house. You're really a different man. For my birthday, she was away in Australia this year for my birthday, and we FaceTime. And she put on Facebook a picture of her and I FaceTiming. And she said, Happy birthday to my everyday counselor, father, and friend. Okay? The fact that I began to change with my wife and we began to see the gospel more clearly because we were restful enough to not believe we were that good and we let each other impact e each other, it softened us where we became different people and our children experienced the fruit of that as a result. Okay? Um, 
So let me finish reading what I had in that one. Noisy or selfish, fleshly parents feed their blind spots, whereas marriage can help you recognize and begin letting go of your blind spots so that you're free to love others for their good. As you're softened in marriage, parental decisions are more shared and thus a better reflection of the wisdom of God. I have the passage from Ecclesiastes there. It says, when you stand back to back, you can defeat more of the enemy. Well, if Dawn and I are standing back to back, what does she see? All my blind spots, okay? Y'all have blind spots, and you need them uncovered. And that person that you're married to is often the best person to help you see those blind spots. But here's the trick with that, y'all. Because my blind spot was often, I'm too busy and I'm too uptight. And I thought, when my wife was helping me see that blind spot, I thought, if you lived with you in all your mess and craziness, you would get more busy and more uptight, okay? What's hard about letting those blind spots be uncovered is oftentimes that person who's helping you uncover them seems responsible for the intensity of those blind spots, okay? So, as you do that, I believe you, what you grow together is harmony, not unity, where you become more... And see, the beautiful thing, you know what, what, what was hidden behind all my busyness and all my um, intensity was a tenderness that has come out because I'm not as driven and I'm not as busy and the gospel has softened me as a parent. Okay? All right. Let me, I want to show you one other diagram. Turn back to those diagrams. Okay? If you see the bottom of the diagram here, there's one couple that's close together and there's one couple that's far apart. This is a couple at the start. Both couples are at the start of their marital journey. Okay, The couple on the left feels close. They're naive. The couple on the right does not feel that close. They're not naive. Okay, So the A, B, C, D are like activities, incidences the couples are going through in between there. So couple one, like let's just, let's just say both couples... The husband grew up in a very masculine family. They um, like to talk about all their sports injuries and all the crazy, daring things they did. It's just a very, very masculine family. And let's say the wife grew up in the opposite. She had sisters, a very feminine family. And in many ways, it was just soft and kinder and more relaxed, okay? So they both have a really different uh, approach to how they're going to do life. But the couple on the left doesn't feel the difference. The couple on the right does feel the difference. So let's say... Both couples, uh, the husband wants to go out and jog, all right? And he says, hey, I can take one of the boys with me in the jogger. And the wife says, you can't do that in our neighborhood. You've got to go over to the Homewood Trail. I don't want you getting hit by a car. And the husband on the left, where he feels together and they don't feel that separate, he goes, okay, we'll just, I'll go over to the trail. Husband on the right thinks, that's crazy. We're not going to get hit by a car. Like, she's too uptight. But maybe he agrees. Because I see it's a new child. My wife's a little more anxious than she needs to be. I'll just go over to the trail. It's not a big deal. But then, a couple years later, the dad's going to teach the boy how to ride the bicycle. And the wife, behind the husband's back, goes and gets knee pads and a helmet and all this kind of stuff. And the husband on the left doesn't say anything. The husband on the right says... He's not using the knee pads. He can wear the helmet. Okay? What I want you to see is 
couple on the left, they're going through difficulty, but they're, it's not being uncovered. And, and then, let's say 10, 12 years later, the young boy's playing sports now. And because the husband has never stood up to his wife, never stood in the way of how controlling she is, he loves that his son is super aggressive when he plays sports. And he revels in it. And he gets lost in it. And it's not even all that good. But silently, he loves it. Where the couple on the right, because they've disagreed, because they've worked through some things, there's just more togetherness and their son bears the fruit of that. He's more rested in who he's becoming. He's not so overly aggressive. So I just want you to see the path to harmony and not unity requires some awareness that there are differences and that you're working through those differences. Remember it says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of another. Every relationship has sparks. For some couples, those sparks are softening you and bringing you together. For other couples, it's dividing you and you're not seeing it. Okay? All right. Let's go back to the... I just want to help you understand a little bit of the path towards harmony, not unity. Um, All right. Let's go to part B. Restful parents can let the normal weight of life be formational for their children. Y'all, I believe doing doing the gospel, leaning into the gospel, navigating through difficulty, and learning to trust the Lord softens us and changes us. The New Testament is really clear that difficulty is our greatest gift. The scriptures would say, because of our fleshly nature, we're not going to choose God because it's a good idea. We really only choose God because oftentimes we have no other option. I know that's hard for us to believe. I think it's true that we really don't choose Him because it's a good idea. We need difficulty that helps us to pay attention to the Lord and begin to worship Him and incorporate Him into our life in a different way. One of the verses I have down there, so the Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them out a on ahead in pairs to all the towns and villages he planned to visit. Go now and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take along any money or a traveler's bag or even an extra pair of sandals. You know, our children are growing up in a fallen, broken world. They are going to experience difficulty. If it's about you and your effort, you don't want your children to go through difficulty because that hurts you. And that's harder on you. When and as you let your children go through difficulty, that's where they begin to find the Lord for themselves. A simple way to think about how rest you are at this might be, if your kids are old enough that they're in school or they're out for the day and they come home, do you ask them, did you have a good day? Or did you ask them, what kind of day did you have? The assumption isn't that they're having a good day. The assumption isn't that they have to have a good day. There's a knowledge and a recognition that many of their days won't be good. And you want them to be in a house where they can talk about that difficulty so together you can pray and wait for the Lord. If we're really growing rest and the Lord is really forming us through the difficulty of this world, we've run into problems that we can't solve and we've been been honest about that where we've needed friends to pray for us and we've needed community to wait for us and we're learning that we often have to wait through difficulty that there's oftentimes nothing we can do to solve things all right if we're being formed that way then we let our children be formed that way 
I can remember counseling a mom who, <laughs> who wanted to talk to me because she was upset. Her, I don't know what birthday it was. It was way back when Brother Bear was in the movie theater. And she was just upset that her daughter cried on her birthday. She cried in the movie. And I was like, if you're upset about your daughter crying at a movie on her birthday, then we got a lot of work to do here, okay? <laughs> Think about Jesus sending the disciples out. And he literally challenged them. He wanted them. He said, don't over-prepare, under-prepare. Because I love to show up in your need, okay? The more restful we are, the more we're believing that our effort is not that important, the more we're able to let our children struggle and suffer, okay? Um, Let's turn the page so we can at least finish this last part, okay? Restful parents naturally model the value of relationship and make room for creativity. To nurture a good relationship, a family needs time and space. Too often busy, anxious, or burdened parents do not have the energy to be with their children. Restful parents nourish their children by providing relaxing time together and by stimulating their creativity. Some of the things we did, like even when we had young children, we would give them room time where they had books. And we started with our oldest, Amy, when she was about 18 months, we got one of those octagonal pens and we would put her in there with just a couple toys and books. And we wanted to teach her that she could learn to um, entertain herself. And like we didn't, and I, I learned this stuff and that's why we did some of it. Like we only had a certain amount of toys out in the room because in our culture, birthdays and in-laws and all, you like you, kids get so much stuff, they're overwhelmed. And so we would put some toys away and then give them, you know, bring them out every three months. It was like we just went shopping and all we were doing were pulling toys out of the attic. But one of the things we really, really did was we had a lot of multidimensional toys, blocks, crowns, clay, um, things like that. Because one of God's first acts, right, was to create from our perspective. Creativity is so natural and normal. And it's so life-giving, right? But if you're busy and focused in doing, there's not restful time to learn how to be creative. One of the things my wife did was she read a lot to the girls aloud because that stimulates creativity. Because you have to have picture things. Today, um, so much is not left to the imagination because so much is online and so many kids are plugged in. All right. Um, this is Mary Piper from that book, The Shelter of Each Other. When families get too busy, the first things that go are rituals. Perhaps I could help them build in some rituals. The family needed some more nourishing activities. As adults, people remember three kinds of family events with great pleasure. Meals, vacations, and time outdoors. I always say when I do my parenting seminar, I say we continue to have meals together because one out of every five we would enjoy. All right? <laughs> we had three girls. We would have some jama in our meals. But when it was an enjoyable evening, we usually lingered at the table and soaked it in, all right? And we tried to make space for that. I read this book, The Shelter of Each Other, when our girls were real small, so I decided to become an urban camper, okay? We, we went to state parks where I still had electricity so I could have my electric fryer and run a fan, you know, if we needed it. Um, but back then, your cell phones didn't work in state um, parks. And, and this is the truth. The first weekend, I went just with the girls, 
And as we were packing up the tents, I just realized how much contact I made with the girls, because a lot of what you do is sit around a fire and talk, like you're really just together. And as I packed up the tent, I began to weep because I realized I had really experienced my girls in time and space, like I had really connected with them. And the more restful we are, the more room we're making for connections, all right? Um, This is a quote here I want to read. Modern parents are teaching children that life exists in caring for and preserving things instead of people. The culture of consumerism is not just possessing things, but doing so with such frequency, volume, and unquestioning routine that those very things, as well as the values with which they are laden, actually possess us. Consuming becomes the central factor around which all of daily life revolves. Where is an unholy amount of our week often spent? Buying, returning, standing in line, driving around town to get the best price, arranging, cleaning, repairing, browsing, updating, discarding, paying, shopping, comparing, financing, and venturing out into the world to get the squarest deal. The first time I encountered this, again, my girls were really, really young, and my middle was upset about something, so my youngest went back to her room to get her piggy bank and brought it out for my middle and wanted her to have all the money. So we let her do it. And it seemed like a really good idea until we went to the Brooklyn Mall the next day. And we were going to do a little shopping, and Elise, my youngest, had no money, and Abby, my middle, had an extra amount of money. And Elise started crying. And at that moment, we had to decide, what are we going to teach her? Are we going to teach her the value of giving and relationship, or are we going to teach her the value of consuming? And we didn't give her any money. Okay? One of the things we did, too, like birthday parties, oftentimes the focus when our kids were younger, the focus is the present and what you're going to get. Oftentimes we would ask our girls, what is it that you value about this friend? What do you think this friend struggles with? How can we pray for this friend? We were just trying to nurture the value of relationship and space. And even that's creativity, just thinking about your friend and imagining what they may struggle with and how to pray for them. A culture of affluenza, the busy, driven nature of our culture, really keeps us from having margins where we really make contact and we're both creative relationally and outside of that. To really be still and know that God is God, oftentimes, y'all, He's pursuing us and He's bringing things to our awareness. The question is, are we still enough in our family life to see that? and make contact with that. I'll um, finish with one other story, all right? This is when my um, oldest, I don't remember how old she was, but I had taken her to Brookwood Mall on on a little daddy-daughter time. And um, that was when they were redoing Brookwood Mall, and they closed Aunt Annie Pretzels. I'm still not happy about that to this day, okay? And Amy, my firstborn who loves ritual, was like, That's the first thing she wanted to do. She said, Dad, we're not going to have a good time. We might as well just go home. And I thought, I took time out of my day to come. Like, we were going to have a good time. But at the same time, my wife and I were realizing that we over-parented her. As a typical firstborn, she had a very sensitive conscience. And we were making it extra sensitive. Because whenever she did anything wrong, we were hopping on her because we were so nervous that we weren't good parents. And I felt the Holy Spirit just say to me, relax and let her try to enjoy this. 
So back in that day, we would go to KB Toy and Hobby, and I would let them dream. We wouldn't necessarily get anything, but they could talk about what they wanted, and I wasn't threatened by that. Like, you can dream all day. We may or may not get anything. So they were talking about Christmas in July because they knew they probably weren't getting anything, but maybe for Christmas we'll get them. So normally that would be a 20-minute thing. It was like 10 minutes, and she was like, Dad, we, need to, we just need to leave. And so I had to run one errand, and then I was like, on the way home, I was like, why don't we just stop at... Um, savages and, and get a little snack and and amy is really healthy i don't know where she gets it from um she like will like eat half of her ice cream cone i don't understand she doesn't get that from her mom or dad okay so i get her a cupcake and she asked for another one and i just was like what is going on here i really felt the spirit say the kindness of god leads us to repentance and i got her a cupcake and so as we're sitting at the edge of uh the bench outside of savages Dad, she goes, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry for uh, being uh, mean about what happened today. And she said, do you know what I learned? I said, I don't know, sweetie, what did you learn? She said, I learned today that it doesn't have to go my way to have a good time. And really, what, as a firstborn, what she said was all things work together for good. Like she incorporated the truth of the gospel because I didn't tell her, we've got 20 minutes, we're going to have a good time, and you better have a good time. I put a boundary around that and waited and rested for God to manifest himself in my daughter's heart. And that's what he did. And I simply said, sweetie, that's a beautiful thing to recognize. And that's a story that we'll still talk about to this day. Because as a firstborn who really likes to be in control, she has to keep remembering things don't have to go her way to have a good time. Okay? All right. Let me stop and pray for us. All right. Lord, I pray the big category, a restful family and, and what that means and that it's foolish for us to labor so hard. You give to us even in our sleep, Lord. May we remember that You are way more for our children than we ever could be. Would You help us pay better attention to Your work in our children's lives? Help us see more clearly, Lord, what you're doing and simply work more at cooperating with you and letting go of all that we think is important. Father, please help us to do that and do that in us and for us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.